from the studios of KPCW in Park City. It's This Green Earth, a weekly talk show about the environment and our relationships with it. I'm Chris Cherniak. And I'm Nell Larson. Well, when it comes to the consequences from climate change, coastal delta communities are among the most vulnerable, causing them to wonder what their lands and waterways will look like following sea level rise, coastal erosion, flooding, and permafrost degradation. Likewise, communities and traditional ways of life are threatened by sea level rise, salinization, and storm surge because of the low elevation of the delta. We'll speak with Dr. Julie Brigham Gret, geosciences professor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, about the research she's performed regarding climate change impacts to coastal villages within the state of Alaska and how the native Alaskan communities there are closely involved in her research. These are the very communities that are being forced to face new realities in their culture, economy, and their day-to-day lives. Then in the second half of the show, we'll speak with Asha Sharma. She's the co-author of a new report from PANA, the Pesticide Action Network of North America, that analyzes how pesticide, uses fuels, uh, pesticide use fuels climate change and vice versa, raising risks to the environment, public health, and food security. The report is the first in-depth scientific review of the issue and features evidence-based recommendations for how policymakers can help break this cycle by supporting agroecological farming practices, pesticide reduction targets, and promoting the rights of the people most impacted by pesticide use. Environmental awareness and education. That's what This Green Earth is all about. Stay with us. Welcome to This Green Earth, a weekly talk show about our relationships with and impacts upon the environment. I'm Chris Cherniak. I'm Nell Larson. And joining us in the first part of the show is Dr. Julie Brigham-Gret. She's a geosciences professor and researcher at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst. And she's here to talk about uh, the research work that she's doing up in the Arctic uh, most notably with respect to the impacts climate change or a warming world is having on coastal communities up uh, in the northern reaches of uh, Alaska uh, in, that, in those areas. Thank you, uh, Dr. Brigham Gret, for joining us this morning on This Green Earth. Thank you for having me. Well, I thought we'd, we'd start here. Uh, Nell and I noted that, uh, noticed that in your bio, you've been conducting research in the Arctic for 40 years. First of all, congratulations. Uh, for, um, but give us a sense of how things have changed. Or, it, yeah, give us a sense of how things have changed in terms of not just what you've been observing, but the types of research you've been doing over those past 40 years. I, yeah, thank you for that. Um, when I started doing work in the Arctic, uh, we weren't really concerned about melting ice sheets. Right. We weren't really concerned too much about sea level rise. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went into working into the Arctic to just understand the climate history. Look at, I, I study past climate change yeah. okay. going back millions of years, uh, you know, two or three million years, you know, before we had a Greenland ice sheet. So I, I've always been fascinated with how did we go from a forested Arctic with no Greenland ice sheet to one with sea ice and tundra and and permafrost. So that's really been the focus of my work throughout uh, different parts of the Arctic, including Northeast Russia, Alaska, 
um, parts of the Canadian Arctic and so on, and even in uh, North Arctic Norway. So um, it's just been fascinating, but it's, gosh, is it's changing a lot. I mean, when I was doing my dissertation work in a small zodiac off, off the north coast <laughs> of Alaska, I got stuck in sea ice. And today that wouldn't happen. Right. Because there, there isn't any sea ice in July and August anymore. So uh, really seeing the changes in my own lifetime. Well, when did you first see those changes with respect to climate change? And when did you, uh, was, uh, you say, you know what, we need to take a, start taking a closer look at this uh, warming world and its impacts on the Arctic? Yeah, ab about 30 years ago, we started noticing that a lot of the small lakes in um, northern and western Alaska were starting to dry up. Hmm. that they were uh, lowering and they're, uh, they seem to be less moisture and, the, and there was a s real significant changes in the surface of the landscape. And that was kind of my first wake up call to, wow, something's really happening. And of course, it's been nothing but accelerating uh, now, as you know. Okay, so yeah, and now, now not only are you know, you're seeing more and more uh, effects showing itself physical, physically, chemically, and biologically with respect to uh, a warming world, a warming Arctic. But now we're beginning to see effects on coastal communities. Um, describe, you know, the, the list of potential impacts that they're facing uh, with respect to, well, like I say, there's, there's physical impacts, there's chemical impacts, and, there, and there's biological impacts, and I guess now there's public health and safety impacts. Yeah, I, I think, you know, some of the, the real be bellwether of the Arctic has always been the Arctic sea ice. Mm. So as the Arctic sea ice cover, of course, comes down through the Bering Strait in coastal Alaska in the winter, um, it provides a, a surface where people can hunt, uh, and it also has major implications for Arctic climate. And what, what we've seen over time is that the extent of that sea ice has become less and less. And of course, I think we're facing in the coming decade or two, probably a, a completely Arctic sea ice free summers starting to happen. So um, this is a, has a dramatic impact on the ecosystems and then the marine environment consider that we get a lot of our fish out of the Bering Sea and those fish are now moving northward into regions of the Chukchi Sea in the Arctic where we don't have the same regulations. So that just for starters, well, we're seeing these kind of impacts. Coastal communities are therefore seeing different kinds of salmon or changes in salmon uh, as they come up the coast and um, even in coastal, uh, very northern coastal Alaska, they're reporting finding new types of fish that normally are only found in the Bering Sea. Um, on land, also changes in the migration and habitats of, of um, uh, like the caribou and so on. And uh, some of the villages are reporting even the influx of beavers. Now, they haven't seen beavers in a long time. I think the last time we had beaver in parts of Alaska that I know of uh, was about 10 or 11,000 years ago when the climate hmm. was a little different. So so there are all kinds of, of issues affecting uh, subsistence living villages. I'm working with two villages where 80% of their food is what they can get from the ocean and from the land. And so if 
if the landscape is changing, the permafrost is melting, getting around on that frozen landscape changes. In particular, a, a real tragic thing is, is so many people out hunting in the wintertime using snowmobiles on rivers and lakes mm. that normally have a lot of, of ice and that ice is now weak and we are losing people monthly hmm. by falling through the ice up there. It's a remarkable, it's so common that it doesn't make the news in the lower 48. <laughs> wow. No. Yeah, yeah. we certainly haven't heard about that. You know, um, you mentioned your recent or your current research, I guess, and, and that work includes the indigenous folks who've long lived in that area. And while that while that may seem sort of like intuitive, like of course you would you would include, um, you know, these indigenous folks with indigenous knowledge. That's actually not something that happens or has historically happened very much. And so I'm curious about um, your your path to doing that and how you came to that approach. Yeah, I as a grad student and in my early career days, I was introduced to a lot of families living in places where I was doing field work. And um, I mean, there's a couple families that even now after 30 years, I exchange Christmas cards <laughs> with them because I've gotten to know them. And I and they had such an impact on me uh, in those early early years. And the, the National Science Foundation is, is now has this program called Navigating the New Arctic, and it's definitely gonna be a new Arctic. Um, and it's a lot of these changes are impacting their infrastructure, water, sanitation, mm. if there even is any sanitation in the villages and um, and their lifestyles. So um, I took the opportunity to bring together a team of uh, civil engineers, specialists in water and sanitation, coastal a coastal group, including some people from uh, University of Alaska Fairbanks and permafrost specialists as a team to work together in co-produce, the important point is co-producing a research plan with the villages, with their tribal advisors to um, collect data that they need to make decisions going on into the future. And at the same time, scientifically, we can look and examine the rates of change of this landscape. What are the intended goals? Is it, are, are, are the goals um, kind of intended to keep communities where they are or does there come a point where adaptation and re resiliency simply isn't going to work and that these communities may have to just literally pack up and, and move inland or elsewhere? Yeah, it, it certainly depends from village to village, but right. Um, one of the villages I'm working with is, uh, it's not too close to the coast, but they do, do ha they are susceptible to flooding, but there are almost over two dozen villages that really are facing the need to move in the coming decades. And the problem is there's no real mechanism at the state and federal level for moving entire villages. Mm -hmm. Um, and the FEMA does not recognize slow coastal erosion and permafrost, slow permafrost melting as a disaster. Mm. That's mm. not in the definition of a federal disaster. So suddenly it makes it difficult for them to get assistance. So there's a lot of us interested in helping these communities develop um, their own scientific, call them indigenous scientists, uh, who can collect the data they need 
moving forward and um, and then make those hard decisions as to how they're going to manage their landscape and at what point uh, do they have to make a really uh, big choice about moving the village to a new area. And you, you can imagine these people have lived in, in place for decades and uh, these are hard decisions. Um, we, we, we're having trouble getting people in Florida to think about managed retreat. You can imagine uh, how much harder that is for people in coastal Alaska who live off the land. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, you know, in the intro, we talked about the impacts of a warmer world on coastal communities. And yes, the, the first communities I thought were along the Gulf Coast. I mean, they equally are facing similar uh, situations with rising sea levels, erosion, uh, increased changes in salinity in the water, et cetera. The, the ecosystems are changing. And you're right. There, though, uh, when they have a, a disaster that FEMA can come in or recognizes hurricanes and other things as a, as a formal disaster and they get assistance and they rebuild, which, yeah. which is a completely separate conversation. Sorry, <laughs> I go down that cul-de-sac. Yeah. yeah. So there, there are these, um, structural barriers. Um, i I would call them colonial barriers to many of these remote communities for them to, um, get the assistance they need in the timeline that they need it. And so this particular region of the Yukon Kuskokwim Delta is an extremely under-resourced region. Uh, and it was um, really compelling to me that, that this is a, there are other parts of Alaska that have got plenty of help, uh, mm. but this is a part of Alaska where they really need an influx of, of scientists working with them, with their indigenous knowledge, bringing their knowledge of the landscape together with Western science to then think about um, the rates of change and documenting what they need to make uh, decisions into the future. Well, that that was uh, right along the lines of my next question. What are the rates of change? Like what kind of speed are we seeing with coastal erosion or permafrost subsidence or things like that? How quickly is it happening in these places? Um, this particular coastline is not as well documented as other places. There are certain areas of northern and northwestern Alaska where they know the rates, coastal erosion can be anywhere from 8 to 10 meters, Think let's say 20 feet of coastal retreat. Uh, the mm. landscape wow. is collapsing into the sea. Hmm. A lot of that, and it has permafrost, you just have to go through the melting point of ice to then lose the integrity of that landscape. And so uh, this area of the coast, uh, there have been some wonderful maps, uh, initial mapping that's been done by the Alaskan State Survey. So we're trying to pick up where they left off to try to document those rates of change so we can kind of understand um, how fast things are happening. So I, again, it depends on where you are. The big, um, what was it called, um, Hurricane Murdoch that came up the coast in August, it was like two weeks after I left these villages, they got hit with this big storm that came up from Japan across the Bering Sea. And I got pictures from my native uh, uh, indigenous uh, collaborators of all of the sandbags pulled off away from the cliffs where they were trying to keep the cliffs from retreating. A lot of storm damage from uh, that particular storm and throughout the Yukon-Kuskokwim Delta. So it, it 
it really brought to light uh, how serious and vulnerable the seriously vulnerable these communities are to big storms. The other thing I might add, which is something we don't think about too much, but the lack of uh, sure fast ice, the lack of that sea ice in winter, where that winter is, the ice is frozen against the coastline, say for two or three miles out from the coast. When a big storm hits in winter, it doesn't hurt the coastline because it's protected by the sea ice. Mm. Well, now there's so much less sea ice mm. that the storm damage, the winter storms, which are so much more severe, have can really eat away at that coastline. So this is making them even more vulnerable, both the double whammy of the lack of the sea ice, but also sea level rise and the uh, and the storm strength. It's it's on all fronts as as you kind of presented. I'm curious: does a lot of the change, like the erosion, happen with specific storm events, like this hurricane or severe storms? Um, or does it happen slowly over time, you know, with just the waves washing away right. at this, you know, lower sea or this lower land? It's it's really the high wind events uh, that are really doing the damage. And if you can imagine a lot of the winds coming out of the west across the Bering Sea, they have that entire fetch of that distance of the Bering Sea to create the wave activity, which is so severe along the west coast of Alaska. So... Um, it, it, it's really these bigger storms that really chew away at the coastline more than anything else. On a nice, calm, sunny day, going along in a boat, you can't even think about erosion. It, it's not something that comes to mind, but boy, in a storm, it's very obvious uh, that the you know sea level's rising and it's eating away at that very, very flat and vulnerable landscape. We're speaking with Dr. Julie Brigham Gret. She is a geosciences professor and researcher at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, talking about the work that she's been doing over the past several decades with respect to climate change's impacts on coastal communities uh, and the Arctic in general, uh, or up in the Arctic. One thing uh, when we talk about vulnerabilities and, and changes that are occurring up there, there's also the potential for change with respect to um, the resource extraction industry, we'll call them. <laughs> the oil and natural gas industry are taking more and more interest in going up there into the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge or so and uh, beginning to uh, explore again for oil and natural gas and perhaps other uh, rare earth minerals, etc., are you seeing increasing examples of of that uh, of those industries poking around up there? Yeah, those industries are there. They're up the Kuskokwim. There's already a, a gold mine that's uh, being developed. Hmm. Uh, you may have heard in the news the EPA just uh, last week tried to put a a, a stop to uh, the pebble mine that right. would go into Bristol Bay. That's a gold and molybdenum. Uh, deposit, which would have impacted uh, the toxicity of the minerals, would have impacted the fisheries mm -hmm. of Bristol Bay, which is a very rich fishery. Um, yeah, it's a tough balance because the economy of Alaska has been about extraction of particularly fossil fuels. Right. And um, so while they appreciate the revenue coming into the villages and into the, into the corpora uh, village corporations from that extraction, 
they're gonna they're they're suffering the consequences of that and it's a delicate balancing act um i know i think senator murkowski is a really tough cookie and she has got a quite a balancing act to handle there and it's a statewide issue of how you balance the revenue that the, the revenue stream that they've developed and yet the impacts on their very environment and the and the communities particularly the coastline in in the last few minutes uh let's touch on the the cultural uh impacts to these communities again you, you know some of these communities are are facing um uh, ultimately a decision point as to whether they can even remain in place and may have to move but there's cultural reasons why they 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 would not want to move um that's yeah okay talk about that they love that they they love that place we we went into the schools in august as they were ramping up and we talked to the kids these were um middle school and high school kids and we asked them what do you like about living here what do you what's your favorite thing to do and they all appreciated the the landscape um they all talked uh with great enthusiasm of wonderful time spent at their fish camps Mm. uh being out on the land and these communities are so warm they they the elders look after the young people they'll show up at the gymnasium just spontaneously and talk to the kids before they start school um there's a lot of efforts to maintain their language and and their heritage and i i've just fallen in love with these communities they're just wonderful people and i hope we can um, help them map out their future as we look you know forward in the realm of uh research and in the arctic and in these um along the alaska coastline you know what are the next priorities that you see or the next trends um that people will be focusing on oh i i do think that uh the two big ones are the coastal erosion and the permafrost decay because the permafrost Mm. impacts not just coastal communities but all across Alaska where there's continuous and discontinuous permafrost it is undermining the roads the railroads the houses just think about having to level your house every few months Um, and there's particularly a lot of flooding happening in many of the rivers uh, even the smaller river systems throughout Alaska with uh, changes in precipitation. So all the communities, both inland and at the coast, are dealing with uh, the effects of climate change. And um, uh, so so it isn't, it's not just a coastal problem. It's all across Alaska. And um, that's where there's going to be large challenges in, in how we move forward to support the existing infrastructure while not taking advantage uh, of this landscape more than we already have. Let me put it that way. <laughs> okay, well, we're gonna have to leave it at, at that too. Um, Dr. Brigham, where can people go to learn more about the research you're doing, um, a website or so? Yeah, the, um, the Navigating the New Arctic program has a community office based in Boulder, Colorado, and they have a local office in Anchorage. And that's a great place to go. just type in navigating the new Arctic community office, and you'll get a couple of websites with links that are of interest to how this program is developed and the co-production 
and sharing of indigenous knowledge with Western science. And I think people will find that fascinating. Well, fantastic. Mm -hmm. Thanks for for the great work that you're doing and, and for joining us this morning on this Green Earth. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Great. All right, let's take uh, a break for uh, some uh, underwriters, sponsors, and when we come back, we're going to shift gears and and talk about pesticides and their impacts on climate change. It's This Green Earth. We'll be right back. Welcome back to This Green Earth. I'm Nell Larson. And I'm Chris Cherniak. And joining us now for the second half of the show is Asha Sharma, the co-author of a new report from PANA, the Pesticide Action Network of North America. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thank you so much for having me. Well, before we dig into this report, we want to ask, you know, what is PANA? Tell us a little bit more about the Pesticide Action Network. Sure. Um, We are actually an international network originally founded in Malaysia. Um, by farmers who are being impacted by pesticide use in terms of their health effects. Um, And we have regional offices all over the world now um, where we're all collectively working to reduce the use of pesticides from the perspective of public health and the environment. And I, in particular, work on our North America work and in particular work on our California team mostly. So here in North America, give us a sense of just how many pesticides uh, are employed um, in growing our crops or, or otherwise? Sure. Um, it's billions of pounds a year um, nationwide. In California alone, it's around 2 billion pounds a year. Um, so the scale is really massive. Um, and also in California, you know, only 5% of farmers are farming organically and 95% of farmers are farming conventionally and primarily reliant on pesticides to manage their pest problems. So we are talking about a tremendous scale um, and that's just agricultural use. And of course, urban use is also significant. Mm-hmm. It's not as much, but um, yes, definitely a very large scale of use in North America. We hear sometimes that, you know, there are pesticides that are just as harmful that can be used in, you know, or herbicides um, that are just as harmful that, that can be used in organic production. Can you give us a little perspective on that? Sure, definitely. Um, there can be harmful health effects for sure from um, organically certified pesticides. Um, Overall, though, we see that many synthetic pesticides that have some of the most harmful health impacts um, are prohibited um, from being used in organic. So it does overall tend to be better, um, but for sure is not a total, you know, fix-all solution. Okay, so it's not a silver bullet, but probably a step in the right direction then? Exactly. So when you you say synthetic-based pesticides... What do those include, um, uh, either on the farm or maybe what we might find in our home? Sure. Um, so synthetic pesticides are pesticides that are chemicals and derived through industrial processes. Um, they're the class of pesticides that are most commonly used in conventional agriculture today, but also are definitely used in people's homes. Um, importantly too, and what we point out in the report is synthetic chem- synthetic chemicals 
including pesticides, are petrochemicals, meaning they're ultimately derived from petroleum and fossil fuels, hence the connection to climate change and greenhouse gas emissions. So, for example, uh, Roundup uh, mm -hmm. is a synthetic-based pesticide. Yes, exactly. Okay. Um, and... And like you say, most of these, the vast majorities of these synthetic-based pesticides find their origins in a barrel of oil or a cubic foot of natural gas, fossil fuel like that. Yes. Okay. Give, give us a little bit more detail, if you will, about how, how these pesticides um, that we're talking about are created. Sure. Um, so really importantly, um, a lot of information about pesticides and their ingredients are withheld from the public. Mm. Um, right now, pesticide manufacturers only have to disclose the active ingredient in a pesticide formulation. And this can often be or make up the minority of the total formulation. So for Roundup, for instance, the active ingredient is glyphosate. Um, so we do have that information, but glyphosate actually makes up the minority of the formulation of Roundup. Um, and we do know that other ingredients that aren't the active ingredients that are typically referred to as inert ingredients can also be really harmful to our health um, and also are typically made from the same type of industrial processes and can be linked as well to fossil fuels um, and petroleum. Um, so that's one thing that I think is really critical to point out just off the bat. It's so interesting to talk about this, I think, because when we think about pesticides and herbicides, we think about I, their toxicity often, I think, and we're not thinking about this actually having a climate impact in and of itself. Is that mm -hmm. sort of like a misconception that you're seeing is pretty widespread? Definitely, and I think that's a huge reason why we wanted to write the report and really raise the visibility of pesticides as being derived from fossil fuels and also being a source of greenhouse gas emissions. Um, I think agriculture in general is really now just starting to become part of the climate change dialogue and climate change policies. Um, and so along with that, you know, I think because agriculture typically wasn't considered as much when it came to climate change, um, you know, pesticides haven't gotten as much attention. And also I think because, you know, of how opaque the pesticide industry is, um, you know, we don't have the same kind of quantifiable large scale modeling studies on pesticides and showing their total, you know, greenhouse gas emissions that we have for other industries. And, and so I think for that reason, we really wanted to write this report and put together as much research as we on the topic to really raise the visibility of pesticides and their contributions to greenhouse gas emissions. In the report, you also kind of draw this other connection between um, climate change and, and pesticides, and that has to do with pest pressures as our climate uh, warms and changes. What, you know, what is that outlook? Sure. Um, well, it's not a great outlook, unfortunately. <laughs> surprise, um, surprise. But <laughs> yes, so there's lots of research out there showing that um, different pests are anticipated to worsen because of climate change impacts. And I can give a couple examples of what that looks like. 
Um, for instance, insect pest populations are anticipated to grow and worsen. Um, this is happening for a couple of reasons. One example is um, we're seeing more milder winters now. Um, and unfortunately, winter is typically a time um, where we see big die-offs of populations of insect pests. Um, but because we are having these warmer temperatures, insect pests are more likely to survive the winters. So we're gonna see, unfortunately, more buildups of uh, insect pests likely um, because of these milder temperatures. There's also evidence showing that additionally, because of increases in temperatures, weeds will be able to migrate to new areas um, also, weeds, because they have more genetic diversity, especially invasive species, um, allows them to outcompete crops when it comes to changing weather and temperatures associated with climate change. Um, so, lots of different reasons why this is happening, um, and you know, different reasons for different pests. But overall, it's a trend that we're expected to see globally of worsening pest pressures. Um, that's regional dependent, but definitely will be a trend. Yes. Yeah, so, okay. So it sounds like we're we have set up a kind of a um, a do loop, a feedback loop, right? Because uh, to to make pesticides, we we use oil and natural gas. Greenhouse gases are produced. M making mm -hmm. pesticides are is an energy intensive process. And then, of course, there's the transportation of it, the fuel used to to transport it, to apply it, uh, etc. But at the same time. Uh, those impacts create a warmer world. A warmer world creates more insects and, like you say, weeds potential for insects and, yeah. and other invasive species, which, well, unfortunately, will require insecticides or herbicides and fungicides to control them. So this, um, like I say, feedback loop gets set up. How do we get out of that? <laughs> Exactly. So, sorry for asking um, you that. Can you just give us the answer to that question? Solve that sure. problem? <laughs> well, luckily, um, there is a solution. And we like to refer to agroecology as really the main way we're going to get out of that vicious cycle that you just named between pesticides and climate change. Mm -hmm. um, and I can give a quick definition of what we mean when we use the term agroecology, sure. and the report, and our work. Um, so agroecology is a way of farming um, that uses ecological principles. It focuses on working with nature rather than against it. Um, it uses minimal synthetic inputs that includes synthetic pesticides and fertilizers. Um, and really importantly, it centers the decision-making power um, of people most impacted by agriculture. So that's um, farm workers, rural communities, farmers, indigenous people, and really making sure the stewardship of our agricultural system is really in their hands. Um, and luckily, the good news is agroecology is already practiced by farmers around the world. It's practiced in California, where I'm based. Um, and really what we need is just a restructuring of our current agricultural policies so that we're promoting this way of farming over the conventional way of farming that's highly dependent on synthetic inputs. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned too the, the public health aspects of working with these chemicals. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, because, well, as a quick sidebar, uh, 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 April is Parkinson's 
Parkinson's Disease Awareness Month, uh, we're doing some things here in the county um, um, Department of Health with respect to that. And among other things, uh, glyphosate has been uh, observed as a potential, uh, has a relationship between exposure and Parkinson's disease. So there's lots of public health issues related uh, to the application and use of, well, in this case, Roundup, which nearly all of us have in our garage or at one point have used to uh, own our lawns uh, and our golf courses and our parks, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Yes, definitely. Um, lots of research being done on Roundup because it is so commonly used and it's been around also for a long time. So um, it's really given, I think, researchers time to do the studies that are needed um, over the long term and really be able to strongly demonstrate um, not only links to Parkinson's, but also non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Oh, so, um, right. you know, that's working its way through the court right now. And lots of plaintiffs are winning court cases hmm. um, against the manufacturer of Roundup, showing that their lymphoma has been, you know, connected to their use of the product. Um, and unfortunately, some of this has to do with problems with how pesticides are approved and registered in the first place. Mm. Um, so oftentimes the EPA um, and in California, it's the Department of Pesticide Regulation. They're really basing um, their safety data and approval of a pesticide product on um, industry studies or the pesticide manufacturer safety studies that are really done over the short term. You know, they're done on mice and rats. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of times that data isn't enough to um, really definitively say that a product is safe. Um, and so, you know, a lot of this comes down to we need changes in how pesticides are approved in the first place so that, mm -hmm. you know, we're not this big experiment as an American public of, you know, let's see what the health impacts are going to be after we approve this pesticide and after it's approved it it's really difficult to get products also deregistered mm -hmm. um whereas other other regions like the european union has a much stricter protocol for approving pesticides in the first place and really the burden of proof is on companies to show that their products are safe and if they they can't prove that um really definitively then you know products aren't approved. Um, so definitely some of that has to do with our regulatory system in, in the U.S. Mm. If you're just joining us, we are speaking with Asha Sharma, um, and she is the organizing co-director of the Pesticide Action Network of North America. And she's also uh, the, the co-author of the report that we're talking about today. Um, and, you know, as we talk about the health impacts and the personal impacts, I want to get a sense of, um, you know, I guess like the uh, exposure levels and the experience of the farm workers that use these substances um, and, you know, how that differs from the exposure that the average person um, might get using a chemical briefly, you know, in their yard or their garden. Sure, definitely. Um, I think that's a really important point. I think when people think about pesticide exposure, a lot of times they're thinking about you know, residue on their foods, but oftentimes the people who are the most exposed are the people out in the agricultural fields. So 100% that's farm workers, that's farmers as well, who oftentimes, you know, they're working really near where pesticides are applied, they can get drifted on, 
um, by pesticides being applied to neighboring farms. Um, this is a big problem too with um, you know organic farmers. Um, so we have a farmer on staff here who actually got drifted on by an aerial pesticide spray that was meant for a neighboring farm um, and, and not only impacted his own health um, and he was a victim of pesticide drift, um, hmm. but also it decimated his organic crop um, that you know wasn't tolerant to that pesticide. Um, and we see in the data definitely farm workers and farmers are far more exposed to pesticides than the general public. And when we talk about you know the health impacts that are really uh, connected to pesticides, cancer, Parkinson's disease, um, a lot of pregnant farm workers um, can have children who end up having developmental disorders mm -hmm. like autism because of their exposure um, while they were pregnant to pesticides. So really clear data um, linking especially agricultural workers to some of the worst, worst health impacts from pesticides. So I was actually just going to ask that, like is the is the research that's being done including and or focusing on these farm workers with the intense exposure or is it focusing, I don't know, in other areas? Sure, um, there definitely could be more research done, um, but there are some really good studies out there. Um, the Chamaco study is one that I highly recommend if people are interested in this topic where they've done research kind of looking at um, farm workers and people in agricultural communities and looking at, you know, how far away they're living from pesticide use. Um, in California, we're lucky because we have um, a pesticide use reporting system where you can see um, what pesticides are being applied um, in your county. Oh, wow. And using that data, you're able to do these types of studies where you can see, you know, how far away people are from pesticide applications and then see what kind of um, diseases, chronic illnesses, that sort of thing um, that they're experiencing. Um, that's not the case in a lot of other states, um, but it is really helpful for researchers to make the case that, you know, proximity to pesticide exposure can impact um, your health. But, uh, explain that a little more. That's really interesting. I can go on a website and find out what farm or what pesticides are being used by what farmers and 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 where they are um so this is a tool that's used in california specifically right. um so and unfortunately we don't get down to the level of you know what farm exactly applied what pesticides but you can see in some level of detail in your county um what pesticides are being applied mm. um, and they have information around, you know, what are the most commonly applied pesticides in your county, <clears throat> you know, how many pounds are being applied. Um, and it's, it is really useful information right now and um, can serve as the basis for, I think, some really interesting notification systems. So in California as well, we're developing a notification system that'll let people know when um, hazardous pesticides are being sprayed near them for the first time. And a large reason of why that's possible is because we have a pesticide use reporting system. Okay. Wow, it sounds like there are a few steps ahead of As always. <laughs> the rest of us. <laughs> as always, yeah. Yes. yes. It, uh, so what can we as individuals do um, when it comes to pesticide use? Um, how can we impact, I guess, these policies or even just like our personal safety? Definitely. Um, 
Well, I think, you know, it's always important to act collectively wherever we can to really, I think, build our collective power and have a lot more influence over the agricultural systems that we want to see. Um, so there's a lot of great organizations um, and movements right now that are trying to um, especially build up the rights and power of our agricultural workers, so farm workers, for example. Um, and I think wherever people can, just plugging into some of these um, movements, you might hear of petitions, that sort of thing that are really focused on protecting the health of um, workers in our agricultural system, that's really critical. Um, also calling for, you know, in climate change policies, making sure that things like pesticides are being included that, you know, typically aren't thought of when we think about climate change and, you know, what, you know, sources of fossil fuels. Um, and I think, you know, really raising the visibility with your, you know, legislators, your local representatives of these types of topics are, are really important. Um, so those are a couple of examples, but um, I think there's a lot we can collectively do and work on to really shift our agricultural system to one that's a lot safer um, for everyone involved. All right, uh, just a, a couple more minutes. As a, as a shopper, to follow on, does it really matter that I go into the supermarket and I buy the organic lemons or oranges versus the, I don't know what to call it, the non-organic or the regular lemons or oranges? Conventional. And, conventional, thank you, Nell. <laughs> uh, and, and pay you know a premium for those quote-unquote organic fruits and vegetables? Yeah, and you know, like we talked about, there's shortfalls with organic. It's not as good as it could be mm -hmm. in terms of prohibiting all harmful pesticides. Um, there's definite things that need to be included in the certification that aren't currently like looking at labor rights of people working on those farms. Um, improving animal welfare, a couple examples. Um, but it is kind of the best that we have, <laughs> unfortunately. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I definitely try to buy organic when I can, um, and not just from the perspective of my own health, but knowing you know that it's um, maybe going to help move us in the right direction of you know signaling that um, I'm, I'm interested in buying produce that isn't grown with pesticides and that that can, you know, improve, um, worker, especially farm worker health. And I think people Good don't point. think about buying organic, um, for that reason necessarily. Um, but because of those shortfalls, I think it's really critical that not only people are thinking about, you know, buying organic, but they're also participating in movements that are farm worker led, um, that are really focused on increasing their rights and you know granting immediate pathways to citizenship for them and mm -hmm. um, knowing that those loopholes exist so great yeah good point fantastic well un unfortunately we have to wrap up oh. um but uh yeah can you just give our listeners um you know point them in the right direction to get more information about pana and your work sure um you can visit us at pana.org um, you should see the report that we've been talking about. It's called Pesticides and Climate Change, A Vicious Cycle on our homepage right now, or you can look it up on our resources library. And thank you so much for having me on today. Yeah, thank you, Asha. Thank you. That was Asha Sharma, the uh, co-author of the new report from the Pesticide Action Network of North America. Thanks so much for joining us.
Welcome back to This Green Earth. It's time to uh, wrap up today's show. That's right. And I think we'll start by thanking today's guest. Sure. Uh, first, Dr. Julie Brigham Gret, the geosciences professor at the University of Mass. Uh, UMass Amherst, University of Massachusetts Amherst, about the research she's doing on climate change impacts to the coastal communities in Alaska. And also uh, Asha Sharma. She's the organizing co-director and co-author of a report on the relationships between pesticides and climate change and climate change and use of pesticides. Uh, you can find that report, more information at org. You can email us your thoughts, comments, and ideas for topics and stories you'd like us to cover at This Green Earth, all one word, at kpcw.org. The interviews for today's show will be posted on the KPCW website later today, and you can also find the show anywhere you find your podcasts. Thanks again for joining us, and remember, this is KPCW 91.7 FM Park City. Tune in and listen like a local.